Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, Josh Baker, spew thoughts about six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic at the end. I want to start off this episode by apologizing for some flubs in the last one. The Pawnee skip ahead time was not saved correctly, and I used some incorrect words here and there, which I normally catch myself saying. Sorry about all that. I'll be damned if I'm not trying to provide you sweet listeners with the best quality podcast I can. This episode, I'll be going over some exciting stuff like bubbly werewolves, animal hybrids, and tall witches. Join me as we go searching for my long-lost sister in the woods, since my name is Adam Wingard, and I have no idea what made the original Blair Witch Project successful. Number 1, The Howling, 1981, directed by Joe Dante. A news anchor named Karen participates in a sting operation as bait to catch a killer named Eddie who's been calling her. Karen meets Eddie in one of those porn booths and freaks out when she sees him. Police shoot Eddie through the door, allegedly killing him. After seeing Eddie, Karen loses her memory and has some intense PTSD from their meeting. She then goes to a secluded resort called The Colony with her husband Bill at the behest of Dr. Wagner, who treats patients there. Bill is bitten by a werewolf, Two of Karen's journalist friends try to figure out what's going on. One of them, Terry, is killed, and it's revealed that all the patients and other people at the colony are werewolves. Chris shows up with a gun loaded with silver bullets to rescue Karen. Chris kills a bunch of werewolves, including Eddie, who wasn't actually dead, traps more in a barn, lights the barn on fire, and drives off with Karen. While driving off, Karen is bit by werewolf Bill. She kills him with a silver bullet. A short time later, Chris and Karen are at the news station. Karen turns into a werewolf on air and Chris kills her. The movie ends showing one of the werewolves is still alive at a bar. Werewolves are the killers. Joe Dante directed the Gremlins movies, which are some of the best comedy horror films of all time. So I decided it was finally time to take a gander at some of his other flicks. I decided to start with The Howling since I had heard about it and it popped up on Shudder. I did not enjoy it. It was hard to even finish. That's partially my fault since I decided to start it around 1 in the morning, but you'd think a movie that has a colony of werewolves would be a lot more exciting. The werewolf design is fantastic though. These are some of the coolest werewolves I've ever seen on film, and they are completely practical. The transformations are great besides the weird bubbling that happens. I mean, the bubbling doesn't look bad, I just think the bubbling doesn't really add to the transformations. Bubbling aside, the practical effects and monster gore makeup are the best things in this movie. None of the acting in this is good, and the main character, Karen, has practically no charisma. She's really bland and mostly forgettable. 
To be honest, most of the characters are. There is a female werewolf named Marsha that kind of sticks out, but even she is nothing special. Kevin McCarthy plays a TV exec in this movie, just like he does in UHF, so whenever he is shown on screen, all I could think about was the jerk he played in that named R.J. Fletcher. If you haven't seen UHF, I highly recommend it. I'm a huge Weird Al fan though. Hey Weird Al, if you happen to be listening to this podcast, I think you should make a horror comedy movie. Dick Miller, who's in Gremlins 1 and 2, is in The Howling. He plays a store owner that sells a bunch of interesting things, including silver bullets. He's genuine and great in everything I've seen him in. There's a part early on in the movie where Karen goes into a porn booth to confront Eddie, the creep that's been calling her. Cops eventually get to the sex store where this is all happening to help her, and the rookie cop that shows up on the scene just starts firing through the booth door when he hears Karen scream. Seriously, rookie? You know you could have easily killed Karen doing that, right? There was no way he could have known she was sitting on the ground. Even though I didn't find this movie enjoyable at all, I'm still going to continue my quest to watch more of Joe Dante's horror films. Skip The Howling. If you really want to watch a werewolf movie with The Howling in the title, watch The Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. I haven't seen the movie, but based on videos I've seen from other people that have, it looks like a ridiculous time. Number 2, Veronica, 2017, directed by Paco Plaza. A girl named Veronica holds a seance with her friends using a Ouija board. The glass they are using as a planchette shatters, cutting Veronica's finger. She bleeds onto the sun icon on the board. The board then snaps in half. Veronica, who is unknowingly possessed, starts seeing a shadow-like figure. She tries to protect her siblings from the demonic entity. She eventually realizes that she is the cause of everything and slits her throat to stave off the possession. Her siblings are saved, but Veronica doesn't make it. Veronica is the killer. Technically. The demon doesn't make her commit suicide. Veronica is a Spanish movie about possession and the evils of using a Ouija board. The events of the film take place in 1991 and are based on true events. My coworker Isaac posted that he was going to watch this, and there were a ton of articles saying it's a terrifying film. I had to see for myself. Is it spooky? It's kind of scary in the beginning of the movie. The first time you see the demon entity is great and creepy. It's just hanging out in the background, which is unsettling. I know some people really hate when stuff is shown on screen that the characters in the film don't notice, but I'm a fan of these kind of scenes. I especially like them in the movie The Strangers. I think these scenes work since it's scary to realize demons and killers can be stalking you without you noticing. They instill a sense of dread since you can't warn the character and can only stare at the screen as you watch what happens. After this initial scene, the movie isn't scary in the least. I'd say the turning point from being scary to silly is when Veronica is grabbed by a bunch of arms that come out of her mattress. In a similar fashion to that scene in Ghostbusters where the arms pop out of the recliner. The arms that grab Veronica are terrible looking rubber arms with three fingers. It's impossible to watch that scene and not think about the people wearing the cheap costumes. From then on, instead of a mysterious demon thing, all I could see was a dude in a cheap rubber suit. One thing I really want to praise this movie for is the lack of jump scares. I don't remember a single jump scare. Good on you, Veronica. 
The acting is pretty good considering the cast is mostly young kids. Their interactions are very believable. The big reveal at the end of the movie is that Veronica has basically been the evil entity all along, well after the Ouija board shenanigans at least. This makes things a lot stranger since one of the things she sees is the naked ghost of her dead dad. Don't get me wrong, her seeing the naked ghost of her dead dad is one of the creepiest parts in the movie, but why did she see the naked ghost of her dead dad? I don't think it was supposed to be a hint at something traumatizing in her past. Veronica just seems to visualize her dad's ghost in the buff for no real reason, odd to say the least. You don't see a lot of full frontal male nudity in horror movies. Something else that is incredibly odd is the fact that Veronica goes to a Catholic school full of nuns and she doesn't really try to get help from any of them. One nun who's called Sister Death ends up kind of helping by telling Veronica vague riddles. Catholics are known as exorcism experts. I was raised Lutheran. When you're having trouble with demonic entities, you get a Catholic. If you get a Lutheran, they'll just throw a potluck and call it a day. What did you bring, Mr. Demon? Spicy meatballs? Fantastic. Don't forget to grab your crockpot before you leave. Veronica is literally surrounded by demon experts and instead decides to draw ancient Viking symbols for protection, which only serve as a minor annoyance to the evil that's plaguing her. It's super cool that the Viking symbols were used instead of crosses, though. It felt really fresh. Unfortunately, after doing a bit of research, it looks like the symbol Veronica and her brother end up drawing is actually Vesir, the Viking Compass, which is a visual spell of protection against getting lost, especially in rough weather. What they should have drawn is Agus Yulmer, the Helm of Awe, which is described as an invisible spell that creates a sphere of protection on the user while casting fear and defeat on an enemy. Regarding the actual events this is based on, it seems that the movie has its differences. Veronica is based on a girl named Estefania. She dabbled in the occult, started acting strange, and seeing odd figures after messing with a spirit board. She also began having frequent seizures. Estefania was taken to doctors, and they couldn't find out what was wrong. A few months after using the spirit board, she passed away in her bedroom, with no official cause of death. The police weren't called to the house until after she passed away. Her parents called them because paranormal activity worsened. Things were moving, there were strange sounds, and they say they saw figures. All of this activity ceased once they moved out of the apartment. I don't know about y'all, but I've been warned time and time again about using Ouija boards and wouldn't even think about using one. If you decide to use one, remember to end your seance by saying goodbye to whatever you end up contacting. Veronica is an okay movie about the dangers of spirit boards. If that sounds fun to you, check it out. If it doesn't, you might still be interested in some of Paco Plaza's other works. He wrote and directed all three of the original Wreck movies. I'm ashamed to say I've only seen the remake, which I remember being fun enough. I might check out the original and some of the sequels in the future. Number 3, Annihilation, 2018, directed by Alex Garland. Since this movie is still in theaters, some of you might want to avoid spoilers. I recommend this one. Skip to 15 minutes, 5 seconds to go to the next movie. A biologist named Lena goes on what is presumably a suicide mission into an area called the Shimmer after her husband, Kane, somehow makes it out of the area. 
Kane is incredibly sick, and Lena believes she may be able to find a cure. While in the Shimmer, Lena and her crewmates see crazy things and realize that DNA from everything in the area is shifting together. A video they find shows Kane cutting open the stomach of a guy in his troop to show that his intestines are moving around. Two of the members in the party are killed by a bear monster, a third turns into a plant person, the fourth explodes into energy, Lena then has a run-in with an alien at a lighthouse in the center of the Shimmer. She gives it a live grenade, which kills it and stops the spread of the Shimmer. Lena is then questioned back at base camp and hugs her husband, who is now an alien. Kane, a bear monster, and Lena are the killers. I'm counting Kane because his actions technically kill a guy, I think, even though it seemed like the guy was in agreement to the stomach cutting. Lena is also being labeled a killer since the alien didn't seem to be malicious. Right when I walked out of the theater, I wasn't really sure what I thought of Annihilation. There are some incredibly unique visuals, the acting is good enough for me, the plot is kind of stupid, a lot of the dumb parts of the plot could be easily fixed by making small changes. Lena's crew is said to be the next in a long line of crews to enter the Shimmer, none of which came back. Why don't they just hang out on the edge or go in with ropes tied around their waists? A bunch of other people died going deep into the Shimmer, so why aren't we trying these easy things? You could have just made Lena's crew the second group to go in after her husband randomly came back. The plot isn't really the reason to go see this movie. The reason why I recommend checking it out is mostly the visual adventure. Some of the visuals are much better than others, a few CGI effects look pretty bad, but overall the film is visually interesting. This movie isn't a horror movie really, it's an adventure film. Sure there are some horror elements like a shark-crocodile hybrid attacking a girl, and a much more intense scene where a bear thing with a skull face makes the sounds of a dead crew member screaming whenever it opens its mouth, but these horror elements aren't really a main theme. That bear scene is incredibly creepy, but how would it be possible for one crew member to knock out and tie up three other people without someone hearing something? I mean, I could have maybe believed that it would be possible if she used drugs to knock out her comrades, but she bashes them in the head with the butt of a rifle. I digress. Based on what you've heard so far, it is probably a little confusing that I recommend this movie. I can't really explain it but it's one of those movies that you grow more and more fond of the more detached from it you are. It tries to do something fresh and original while also being rated R, which I appreciate. If you decide to see this based on my recommendation, go for the overall feel and atmosphere of the movie. Don't go expecting a great plot or you'll probably hate it. Number 4, Ravenous, also known as Les Affamis, 2017, directed by Robin Aubert. People join together to try and survive an outbreak of zombies. The zombies are smart enough to work together and set traps. All of the people we follow are killed, except for a little girl named Zoe, who escapes and joins with a race car driver. Zombies are the killers. This is a French-Canadian slow-burn zombie movie that is mostly focused on the character interactions of different people who end up forming a group. This doesn't mean that the movie is devoid of action. There are several intense scenes that take place when zombies attack the party. 
There is a lot of gore in this caused mostly by zombie bites, a machete rampage, and gunshots. Digital blood is used but in a tasteful manner paired with practical effects that look amazing. There is a digital zombie head explosion in this that looks great compared to the garbage CGI head explosion in Dead Shack, which I ranted about last episode. The mechanics of the zombies are somewhat confusing in Ravenous. Some zombies just run around yelling while others form clicks and set traps for the still living while still finding the time to stack random items into piles for some reason. I don't really think much is added to the movie by having the zombies be somewhat intelligent. I guess it does create some creepy scenes, one example being a scene where a woman zombie continuously toys with a pull string of a crying doll, but overall the zombies being intelligent doesn't change much. There is a part where a lady goes to relieve herself in a field and ends up stepping on a device that zombies set up to alert them of the presence of a normie. The last thing I want to worry about when pooping in a field is triggering a zombie alarm. Another difference with the zombies in this is the fact that they seem to bite victims for the sole purpose of turning them instead of actually trying to eat them. This is somewhat interesting since it means their goal is to spread the infection when it's normally just to eat people. The acting in this seemed alright, no one's acting stuck out as being terrible or amazing. Out of all the characters we are introduced to, the best by far is who I refer to as Business Lady. She's first shown hunting zombies with a machete and her stylish gray suit. Throughout the rest of the movie, she is quiet while also being the most badass. She ends up talking about how she was away from her family, getting a manicure when the outbreak happened. After not being there to protect her family, she decided to abandon being a lady and become 100% business. There is an awesome last stand from her where she takes on as many zombies as she can with her loyal machete in order to buy the others time to run. I would watch an entire movie about the exploits of Business Lady. There's another character that gets overrun by zombies and instead of being a badass like Business Lady, the other character just stands still with their gun in their arms and gets swarmed. At least go out shooting, if not for yourself, for the others. Does this movie bring anything new to the table in terms of zombie movies? Not really. I'll take a page from Hannibal Burris's book and say, Zombies is the same. If you are a fan of zombie movies, you should definitely check out Ravenous. If you're hungry for more zombie related stuff, I will be going over my favorite zombie media towards the end of the episode. Keep your pants on and try not to get bitten before then. That reminds me, when Business Lady first meets two old ladies, the old ladies make her strip down to her underwear to check her for bites. What if she had gotten bitten in her swimsuit area, old ladies? Hypothetically, what if I was going to the bathroom in a field and accidentally alerted some trap-setting zombies to my presence that jumped me, allowing one of them an opportunity to bite my butt, or worse? If I was lucky enough to get away and ended up being stopped by these old ladies, they'd be none the wiser of the bite I received to my no-no zone until I turned and started chomping away at them. This is just a humble PSA to check butts for bites in the event of an actual zombie apocalypse. It's better to be embarrassed but safe than sorry. Number 5, The Frighteners, 1996, directed by Peter Jackson. Frank Bannister, played by Michael J. Fox, is a guy that can see spirits. He uses this ability to scam people. 
he meets a girl named Lucy, who he becomes attached to after her husband dies. Frank and Lucy figure out that a mass murderer's ghost has partnered up with his still-living partner-in-crime girlfriend to continue raising their kill count. Frank and Lucy end up stopping the murderers and falling in love. Johnny Bartlett and Patricia are the killers. I've talked about how much I love Peter Jackson on this podcast and was very excited to watch this. Boy, was I disappointed. I'll start off by saying the acting from the leads is terrible. Michael J. Fox does not work at all as Frank Bannister. I don't think he's a very good actor. This movie was his last role in a live-action feature film before he went on to television. He somehow ended up being perfect for Back to the Future, but he was not a good fit here. I haven't seen Teen Wolf yet, but I'll probably check it out eventually to see if it changes my opinion at all. Trini Alvarado, who plays Lucy, doesn't bring anything to the movie either. Her performance is incredibly flat. There are a ton of horror movie actors in this. You have John Astin, the original Gomez Adams, as the judge. Dee Wallace, who played the main character in The Howling, as Patricia. And Jeffrey Combs, from Reanimator fame, as Special Agent Dahmers. Gary Busey's son Jake is also in the movie as Johnny Bartlett. No one really stands out, unfortunately. Another movie that I haven't watched yet is Reanimator. I've tried in the past, but for some reason I haven't finished it. So maybe Jeffrey Combs is normally great, but in this he's abysmal. This was Peter Jackson's first Hollywood film, which might be the biggest reason why this didn't fully capture his charm. Jackson didn't originally plan on casting Michael J. Fox. Jackson's Hollywood talent agent suggested him. The Frighteners was originally supposed to be a much smaller scale spin-off film of the television series Tales from the Crypt. After sitting through the nearly two hour long feature film, the Frighteners probably would have turned out a lot better as the spin-off. The digital effects are a hodgepodge of interesting and terrible. The ghosts in general look pretty great. They glow and you can see right through them. This was mostly done practically by filming scenes with ghosts twice, one take with them in frame and one without. Then the digital magic was done. There are multiple awesome looking gore effects that pop up whenever a ghost gets hurt by things like ghost bullets or a spectral scythe. These ghost effects are pretty much the only thing I really enjoyed while watching The Frighteners. The Grim Reaper character that's revealed to be Johnny Bartlett doesn't look great and a lot of the ghostly effects surrounding that character look incredibly bad and dated. Weta Workshop was known only for their practical effects at the time, so it's disappointing that more practical effects weren't used. They tried to make the Reaper practically, but it was proving too difficult. Danny Elfman does the score, and while I normally enjoy a cartoony score, I praise Braindead for its that was done by Peter Descent. Elfman's score doesn't mesh well with the movie. I can't really put my finger on why, it just didn't work for me. I really wish I could recommend checking this out, but The Frighteners is a hard pass. It's a comedy that didn't really get any laughs from me. Do yourself a favor and watch something else from Peter Jackson, like Bad Taste, Brain Dead, or Meet the Feebles. Number 6, Blur Watch. I mean, Blair Witch, 2016. Directed by Adam Wingard. Heather from the original movie's brother James goes into the forest with some friends and locals to try and find his sister because he believes she's still alive for some reason. 
His girlfriend Lisa is making a documentary, so the hijinks are recorded. The Blair Witch kills everyone except a local named Talia that is killed by one of the friends named Ashley who snaps a voodoo doll of Talia in half and Lane, the other local, who is stabbed by Lisa. The Blair Witch, Ashley, and Lisa are the killers. Adam Winger also tries to be a killer of great original things by making sequels and unnecessary live-action adaptations of them. I have no idea how this dude lucked out and made your next. Everything else I've seen from him has been absolutely terrible. I could rant for an entire episode on the atrocity that is Adam Wingard's Death Note. Here we have him directing what is kind of like a direct sequel slash reboot of The Blair Witch Project. I think The Blair Witch Project is one of the best horror movies of all time for reasons like believable acting, being shot in a way that makes you think it could actually be found footage, and leaving the scariest parts to the viewer's imagination. Winger decided to do the complete opposite with this movie. I'll start off by saying the acting is straight up awful. The entire cast doesn't know how to emote correctly. One great example is when James says, That's Peter, he's okay, in the most deadpan way possible. Before this, he thought Peter, his best friend, since they were children, was dead. Lane, who is one of the locals, is the best character of the bunch. His acting is also terrible, but he becomes a great comic relief character due to said acting. At one point in the movie, he shows up with a beard that looks exactly like the one made out of literal pubes that Aaron McGahey is tricked into having glued to his face in the Jackass movie. For shame, makeup department, for shame. Why did he randomly grow a beard, you might be asking? Time is weird in the Blair Witch Forest for some reason. Did there need to be a supernatural time element? To answer that question, ask yourself if there ever needed to be another Blair Witch film after the original. I haven't seen The Book of Shadows, but my interest is peaked now. How bad could it be compared to this 2016 version? The group in this movie has some of the most amazing cameras I've ever seen. They have these Bluetooth looking cameras that almost all of them wear, that record in HD, don't need a light source to capture images in the dark, and are able to record crystal clear audio even at a loud nightclub. None of what is shown in this movie is believable as found footage. One of the freakiest parts of the original is not knowing exactly what happened to everyone. Don't worry though, we the audience aren't smart enough to use our imaginations in any way, so Adam Wingard made sure to show us the Blair Witch. She's super real and also surprisingly tall and lanky. I swear the Blair Witch should try out for the WNBA. Not only is she tall, she spends most of the movie swatting people. With her hand. Not like Twitch streamer swatting, she doesn't find the kids' addresses and have a SWAT team burst in on them. One of the funniest parts of the movie is when one of the friends named Ashley climbs up a tree to get a drone that got stuck. Right when Ashley is about to get the drone, the Blair Witch's arm snaps into frame and swats Ashley out of the tree. Let me save you a lot of time. Look up the Dikembe Mutombo Geico commercial. Got it pulled up? Okay, whenever you see Dikembe, picture the Blair Witch. And whenever you see him swat something, picture the swatted items as James and his friends. At the climax, you have James and Lisa staring into a corner. Since you only die if you see the Blair Witch, James hears Heather's voice. 
Lisa tells James that it's not really Heather, but he turns around anyway. Swat. Dead. Lisa then uses a camera to look behind her. Luckily, the Blair Witch is adhering to the Basilisk rules from Harry Potter, so you can see her and live as long as you take a peek at her through something. Lisa sees all BW by looking at her camera's display screen, and BW jumps out of the frame because she doesn't want to be recorded since she's butt naked. Lisa then walks backward, using the camera as her guide, all while making the funniest possible faces. BW then pretends to be James, and Lisa falls for the classic flim-flam shim-sham trick that she just told James not to fall for. Like, literally right after James falls for it, she does. I mean, BW could have gotten me just by shouting cheeseburgers. Got a bag of, uh, hamburgers here for ya. Just walk into the shadowy part of the forest where no one can see ya. Anyway, she turns around, then swat, dead. Seeing BW's hand as she swats the kids honestly made my day. It is so funny to see. All of the deaths in this movie are ridiculous and will make you laugh. The movie fails at being scary. I don't count a jump scare every two minutes as scary. This movie probably has the most jump scares of any movie I've ever seen. There are some gore scenes in the movie which uh, appeared to be done practically. They look fine, but don't really have a place in the movie. The gory wound that prompts the scenes isn't even inflicted by BW. This movie also adds a pointless stuck in a small crawl space sequence, which just comes off as a cheap ripoff of The Descent. I think I actually recommend this movie if you are in the mood to watch something incredibly stupid, hilarious, and bad. Adam Wingard is a complete hack that somehow lucked out when making your next. Number 7. Zombie Extravaganza I've gorged on all sorts of zombie media growing up. I used to be all about zombies. I'd watch all the trash movies I could get my hands on. These days, I'm not really into them as much. I'm not a fan of The Walking Dead show. Maybe the comics are good, but I haven't read those. I'll still watch a zombie movie whenever they pop up, but I no longer roam the aisles of a video store looking for the dumbest possible zombie movie I can find. I don't even think you can do that most places these days. Maybe I'm a zombie hipster or something. I still want to be able to help guide all of you beautiful listeners when it comes to all things horror, so I thought I'd go over some of my favorite zombie-related media. Hopefully, I'll be able to fill your brains with some worthwhile recommendations. I'm going to start off by stating I'm not an expert, and you'll figure out I'm a huge faker right now. Starting off with Dawn of the Dead 2014, directed by Zack Snyder. Why am I not recommending the original? I, um, well, haven't seen it. I know, I'm horrible. But regardless of your opinion on Zack Snyder, Dawn of the Dead is probably the best modern zombie movie. It has all your favorite zombie rules, the drama, and it's set in a mall just like the original. It's an incredibly fun movie with a great cast. There is a whole subplot about a pregnant woman that's been bitten turning into a zombie before giving birth to, you guessed it, a zombie baby, which is incredibly stupid, but the rest of the movie is a good time. I've gone over some great campy zombie movies in the past, and another stellar one is The Return of the Living Dead, 1985, directed by Dan O'Bannon. It doesn't take itself seriously at all. 
you might have seen pictures of a sludge zombie that is prominent in the film. It's a cautionary tale about the dangers of opening random military barrels. It also has a group of punks in it, one of which is Linnea Quigley, who's been in multiple movies I've watched for this podcast. Who doesn't love punks? A more recent low-budget zombie comedy that I found endearing is Wormwood, 2014, directed by Kaya Roche-Turner. It's an Australian movie, and while not the most polished and cohesive film in the world, it has a lot of charm. At one point in the film, zombies are used as fuel in this Mad Max meets the undead experience. On to a papery recommendation. World War Z 2006 is a novel written by Max Brooks, which is presented as a bunch of interviews with people that survived the zombie apocalypse. Hollywood bought the rights to make a movie of the book solely so they could refer to the bucket of vomit they call a movie as World War Z. The book is amazing though. There are so many different stories from various types of people in crazy situations. World War Z would make a great HBO series. Now let's plug ourselves in for some video games. Dead Rising 2006, developed by Capcom. I think the original Dead Rising is one of the greatest sandbox games of all time. You're a photographer named Frank West who ends up stuck in a mall during a zombie apocalypse. Not only do you have to deal with flesh-craving fiends, you also have to buckle your pants and take down a bunch of crazy psychopaths. The game lets you use pretty much anything you can find in the mall to dismember the undead. It's the first game I played where you could create a path through a food court, leaving carnage in your wake with the lawnmower. Another sandbox-style zombie game is State of Decay 2013, designed by Richard Fogue. This game is more about surviving, gathering supplies, and rescuing people to grow your party. Did I mention if you die in the game, you die for real? Well, not like, for real for real. But if one of your characters dies, you can't bring them back. They are super dead, like dead dead. Not Marvel superheroes dead, where they are mystically revived in five issues. It makes the game a lot more intense and heightens the sense of accomplishment you feel when bringing back a bag of food to your headquarters. The sequel should be coming out soon, which is going to allow you to party up with friends this time. Do you like tower defense games but wish they were more streamlined? Then check out Plants vs. Zombies 2009, developed by PopCap Games. The first game in the series is easy to learn and a ton of fun. You get different plant units to defend your lawn against the continuous zombie onslaught. A great thing about this game is the fact that you can play it on pretty much any computer. Make sure to avoid the sequel though. PopCap Games was bought out by EA, who in true EA fashion, sucked the soul out of the game and added a bunch of awful microtransactions. There are still a ton of classic zombie movies and other ghoulish media I haven't experienced, so this definitely won't be the last time you hear about zombies on this podcast. That's a wrap for episode 14. Big shout out to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their site, stickerfridge.com, which allows it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps. Check out their other shows and video projects. I've been getting some great recommendations recently. I hope to eventually get to all of them. If you have any feedback about the show, want to recommend something, or just chit-chat, hit me up on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. If you like what you hear and think someone you know might enjoy the podcast as well, it would be absolutely godlike if you politely told them about Blank is the Killer. My name is Josh Baker, and I approve this podcast.